Father in heaven, when we don't understand, when we can't see, when we can't see his plan, we pray that you would help us to trust your heart. God is too wise to be mistaken. We pray that you'd bless us today with your spirit. Speak to us, we pray. May the Holy Spirit guide us and lead us into truth. For we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning once again. Happy Sabbath. And it's hard to believe uh, my wife and I have been here three years this October. And we're going into our fourth year. We never thought we'd end up here in Alaska, but we're praising the Lord for just the journey. And everyone has been so gracious and wonderful to us. And we counted a privilege to be able to minister together here in Alaska. Well, today we are continuing in our series of messages entitled Lessons from the Life of Daniel. And in your study guide, or in your bulletin is a study guide of today's presentation and we mentioned last Sabbath that the book of Daniel has two different genres end time prophecies and stories for this sermon series we'll be focusing on the stories and of the eight stories six reveal characteristics that we are to seek to emulate as the prophecies are being fulfilled and two reveal characteristics that we are to seek to avoid as the prophecies are being fulfilled and open your bibles with me to daniel chapter 5 which was our scripture reading that cheryl gave and today's story is portraying a characteristic that we are to avoid as these prophecies are being fulfilled. Daniel chapter 5, and while you're turning there, I want to do a brief outline or brief background of this chapter. Nebuchadnezzar has died, Belshazzar is king of Babylon, and the army of the Medo-Persians has encircled the city of Babylon. Belshazzar is quite resolute, I should say, or quite undaunted by this news that his city has been surrounded because the city of Babylon was impregnable. This is from a Bible scholar. He says that Belshazzar thought that his great city, Babylon, was impregnable. He had good reason to feel secure for the square city was enclosed by two sets of walls, each 25 feet thick, and reportedly as high as 350 feet. That's three football fields, more than three football fields. The walls were thick enough that four chariots abreast could be driven around the top of the walls, just inside the outer walls was a moat, and inside the moat was another system of inner walls. And on top of the wall, all around Babylon, were towers that rose another hundred feet. The river Euphrates ran through the center of the city from north to south. In short, Babylon was one of the most imposing walled cities in the history of the world, and Babylon had enough grain to last them for 20 years. This is an artist's depiction of ancient Babylon. You can see the outer wall. 
and they've done archaeological digs and discoveries, 350 feet, 25 feet thick, 350 feet high, and you can see the inner wall there, and the river Euphrates ran through the center of the city of Babylon. They also had a series of gates and bridges and walls that lined the river Euphrates so an enemy could not get into the city through the river. So in Daniel chapter 5, verse 1, Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. Nebuchadnezzar's son, Belshazzar, is quite confident. And so he throws a Babylonian ball, a party. And this was a feast that was going to end all feasts. And one Bible writer, scholar, indicates that Oriental kings were notorious for their extravagant feasts. Archaeological discoveries revealing that some Persian monarchs were known to dine daily with 15,000 guests at a meal. One king had a banquet for 69,754 guests at a banquet dedicated to his new capital city, Kala, in 1879 BC. A historian describes the food at these banquets, writing that 1,000 animals are slaughtered daily for the king. These comprised of horses, camels, oxen, deer, and most of the smaller animals. Many birds were consumed, including Arabian ostriches, geese, and chickens. They knew how to party. So you can imagine this party is going on. And the wine and the alcohol is flowing. The music is glaring blaring and there are thousands of individuals in this banquet hall and the revelry and the drunkenness and the licentiousness you can go on and on and Belshazzar is going around this party and then he gets a bright idea why don't you get those sacred vessels the ones that Nebuchadnezzar took from Jerusalem they were used in the sanctuary service get those golden cups and bring them here to the banquet hall. So they bring in these sacred holy vessels into the banquet hall of Belshazzar, and Belshazzar pours his favorite alcoholic beverage into those sacred cups. And he says, I want to give a toast to the gods of gold and silver. And while this party is going on, and the drunkenness, and the revelry, and the debauchery, and every type of debasing thing that we could or could not even want to imagine, and they're going around carousing, and the music is blaring and glaring, and it goes on, and suddenly, the Bible indicates that on the far side of the wall, a hand appears, and this hand is not a, attached to anybody. It comes out and begins to write on the wall. The book Prophets and Kings indicates that after these words were written, they stayed on the wall emblazoned like fire. Talk about instant sobriety, right? They're like, oh! And the Bible says that the hips of Belshazzar were loosened 
What does that mean? And his knees began to knock together. This man was scared. Everyone is hushed. They look at the wall. The music comes to a screeching halt. Everyone drops their alcoholic beverages and they look up in horror at this inscription on the wall. And then Belshazzar says, call in my wise men, the astrologers, the soothsayers, the people that do seances. I can't believe these guys are still employed. It seems a, a reoccurring theme, right? They come in and same old story. They can't interpret the inscription, so they call in Daniel. Daniel, by this time, is over 80 years of age. The prophet comes in before the king, and the king says, please, tell me the meaning of this inscription, this handwriting on the wall, and I will give you rich rewards. Daniel says, you can keep your tip. I'll give you the interpretation. And so Daniel goes on to give the king a history lesson, a theology lesson, and then he gives him a reading lesson. First, the theology lesson, or the history lesson. He reminds him about King Nebuchadnezzar, how King Nebuchadnezzar was a beast for seven years. We read about that last Sabbath, and how he did not humble his heart until this thing happened to him for seven years, and then afterwards he was converted and gave his heart to the Lord Jesus. Then he gives a theology lesson. He says, look, these gold and silver gods that you have praised cannot see or hear. Then he gives them a reading lesson, and here's the reading lesson in verse 25, and this is the inscription that was written, Mene, Mene, Teko, Yupharsin. This is the interpretation of each word. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Teko, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And that very day, Cyrus came into the city and Babylon fell and Belshazzar was slain. Babylon fell in one day. Now, the Bible indicates that there are parallels between the fall of ancient Babylon and the fall of end-time Babylon. There's ancient Babylon in the book of Daniel. The Bible indicates that in the end of time, there will be a mystic Babylon or an end-time symbolic Babylon. And both of them will rise to a place of prominence, but both of them will fall very quickly. And so in your study guide, there is these comparisons, or there are these comparisons of ancient Babylon and end-time Babylon. Number one in your study guide, Belshazzar made his subjects drunk. Daniel chapter 5, verse 1. End-time Babylon makes the kings of the earth drunk, according to Revelation chapter 17, verse 2. You can see the text on the screen. The kings of the world have committed adultery with her, Babylon, and the people have, who belong to this world have been made drunk by the wine of her immorality. See, the same terminology is used. In other words, to understand end time Babylon, we actually have to go to the book of Daniel to understand ancient Babylon. Both of them made people drunk 
Comparison number two, Belshazzar and his guests drunk or drink from golden goblets. End time Babylon in Revelation 17 drinks from the golden cup, according to Revelation chapter 17, verse 4. We read here on the screen, she, Babylon, held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adultery. Same type of terminology is used. Ancient Babylon had a cup and end time Babylon will have a cup as well. Let's go to our next comparison, comparison number three. Ancient Babylon mixed the treasures of God's sanctuary with pagan revelry. End time Babylon mixes worship with paganism and spiritualism. The Bible indicates in Revelation chapter 13 that all the world will worship this beast, which has the inscription of Babylon on her forehead. But this beast, this beast power, Babylon, is a synthesis of paganism and Christianity. In Revelation chapter 18, verse 2, it says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit. So the end-time Babylon will be this unusual mixture, a co-mingling of Christian beliefs with pagan beliefs, of Christianity and spiritualism. We come very quickly to our next comparison, comparison number four. Ancient Babylon was defeated by the kings of the east, Darius and Cyrus. The Medo-Persian kings came from the east, east of Babylon, and the Bible indicates that end-time Babylon will be defeated by the heavenly king of the east, according to Matthew chapter 24, verse 27, and Revelation chapter 16, verse 12. Jesus will come from the east. Amazing, these parallels in the Bible. Here it is in Revelation chapter 16, verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. So, very interesting that Cyrus comes from the east, Jesus comes from the east. Ancient Babylon falls, mystic Babylon falls as well. Ancient Babylon was built over the river Euphrates, as we've just seen in our earlier part of our study guide today. End time Babylon will be built over the symbolic river Euphrates, according to Revelation chapter 16, verse 12. Now, when you look at how Babylon fell, remember the river Euphrates flowed through the center of Babylon, and there were a series of gates and fortifications alongside the river Euphrates to ensure that no army could come through on the river Euphrates. Well, Cyrus did something very ingenious in that he had a group of his engineers here at the top of the river Euphrates, the north part of it, he began to divert the river Euphrates into a channel and possibly a lake 
Meanwhile, he had another division on the north side where the river Euphrates flowed into the city, and another division on the south side where the river Euphrates exited the city. And when the waters were dried up and diverted, Cyrus marched into the city. Now, because Belshazzar was in a drunken feast and was so confident, he did not order that the gates would be shut. If the gates had been shut, Cyrus's army would have just marched in one side and out the other. But because of their confidence, Belshazzar left the gates open and Cyrus and his army were able to take the city. This is interesting because in Isaiah chapter 45, the Bible predicted hundreds of years before Cyrus was even born that this would take place. Isaiah chapter 45, this is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him and to strip the kings of their armor to open doors before him so that what? So that gates will not be shut. Gates will not be shut. And he calls Cyrus by name. Hundreds of years before, the prophet Isaiah predicted that Cyrus would conquer and says that gates will not be shut. This is one of the many evidences to me that the Bible is reliable and trustworthy that you can trust the veracity of scripture because of predictive prophecy, just like the one that we've seen here. Bible scholars believe that Cyrus knew about this prophecy from Isaiah. And he had almost a providential sense that this was going to take place. He was very kind to the, to the children of Israel, of Judah, afterwards, and you can see why if indeed he did know about this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 45. Comparison number six, ancient Babylon falls when the river Euphrates was dried up. And then we come to end time Babylon. End time Babylon will fall when the symbolic river Euphrates dries up. It's interesting because in Revelation chapter 16, verse 12, the Bible indicates that this will happen. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. In other words, the Bible in the book of Revelation is indicating that there is a parallel between the way that ancient Babylon fell and the way that mystic Babylon and time Babylon will fall in the future. It falls when the river Euphrates dries up. And of course, this in Revelation chapter 16 is symbolic. Let's go to our next comparison here. Comparison number seven, ancient Babylon fell because of God's prophetic word written by a bloodless hand, and end time Babylon will fall because of God's prophetic word as found in the books of Daniel and Revelation. So there you have it, the comparisons between ancient Babylon and end-time Babylon. There's a whole lot that we can go through along these topics, but let's come to our practical application here today. 
and it's found in Daniel chapter 5, verse 22. But you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. Here's a practical application, and Daniel is talking to Belshazzar, and he gives a history lesson recounting how Nebuchadnezzar was humbled and gave his heart to God seven years as a beast, and Daniel says to Belshazzar, but you, you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. And here is the key thought for today's presentation. It's not how much you know, it's what you do with what you know. It's not how much you know, it's what you do with what you know. God is very fair, and he's merciful. You ever wonder about uh, some of these native populations who for thousands of years were isolated from any sort of Christian exposure? Are they going to be in the kingdom? Well, this is a very uh, troubling thought for some, and I'm so glad for this insight from the book Christ Object Lessons. It says, wherever there is an impulse of love and sympathy, wherever the heart reaches out to bless and uplift others, there is revealed the working of God's Holy Spirit. In the depths of heathenism, men who have had no knowledge of the written law of God, who have never even heard the name of Christ, who have been kind to his servants, protecting them at the risk of their own lives, their acts show the working of a divine power. In other words, to whom much is given, much is expected. To whom much is not given, you're not held accountable for the lack of that information. In other words, there's going to be people in heaven that even though they may not have had the exposure that we've had as Christians, they have submitted themselves to the inner workings of the Holy Spirit. God speaking to the heart. God speaking to the conscience. And they're going to be in the kingdom. Amen? Because God's not going to be like, oh, you had no access to scripture. Tough. You can't make it. God's not going to be like that. It's not how much you know. It's what you do with what you know. And with individuals that have been in isolation and not had exposure to Christianity, God says, look, I'm going to take into consideration where you were born, when you were born, the type of parents you had, the type of exposure you had, all of these types of things that you have handed down to you, and the lack of information, and God is going to be absolutely fair with every single person. He's not going to say, oh, can't make it because you didn't have the information. Praise God for that. Praise his name. He does not require much where much has not been has not been bestowed. Now the converse of that is true as well. Luke chapter four, uh, twelve verse forty eight says, "For unto whomsoever much is given, of him much shall be." What does it say? Much shall be required. And this is where I start to get a little bit nervous. For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall much 
be required. Now, some of us might think, um, okay, so please don't tell me. That way I won't be held accountable. Ignorance is bliss, we say. I'm just going to not open my eyes to any sort of information that's given me. Well, that's kind of an interesting thought, but when you go a little bit deeper into that thinking, imagine if you went to your spouse and you're like, please don't tell me any information about you because I don't want to be held accountable. You know, what if your spouse is like, oh, I really enjoy flowers. You're like, oh, don't tell me because I might have to get you some one day. <laughs> that won't go over very well. You know, if your wife tells you, uh, I really enjoy acts of service, you're like, oh, don't tell me, I might have to do your dishes once in a while. And this notion of withholding information or not wanting information, in other words, if you love, you want to do what? You want to know. The two are linked together. If you love someone, you want to know the information. And it's the same in our relationship with God. If we love Him, we will want to know. It's only when we have a, a strained relationship when we say, oh, I don't want to know because I'll be held accountable for that information. I may have to act in this relational context. He does not, who does not have much will, it's not how much you know, it's what you do with what you know. Now, I lived in Adventist communities for a great portion of my life. And uh, I was born in an Adventist hospital, uh, lived in these Adventist communities, these nice little Adventist bubbles. Um, some people call them Adventist ghettos. And uh, moved from one location to another location, to the place where I was next to the General Conference, then next to the Review and Herald, and next to the old General Conference, and just in these Adventist communities. It got to the place where I'd even go to McDonald's in one of these communities, and they were serving veggie burgers, because there were so many Adventists in this town. And the thing is, it's a blessing, and it's also a challenge as well. Because after a while, there is a level of cynicism that can sometimes creep in. Not all the time, but sometime. Cynicism in regards to what you believe. And sometimes there's mockery of the tremendous legacy that we've been given as a people. And it's very subtle in how it creeps in. You know, being born into the Seventh-day Adventist Church, it's a blessing, but sometimes you don't always appreciate what you've inherited. And the thing that really brought me out of that was when I began to go door to door selling books. And suddenly, I was exposed to people that didn't believe the same way I did. Atheists, agnostics, demon worshipers. I'm telling you, all kinds out there. And I'd be out there knocking on doors, Baptists, you know, all, all types of different denominations. And suddenly, I came to the realization, wow, everyone is not an Adventist. <laughs> Whoa, wake up call, like, oh my. And then it came, I came down to, like, what really do I believe? 
And I came to the conclusion that the only reason I was a Seventh-day Adventist was because I was born a Seventh-day Adventist. And I came to terms with this idea that I need to be a first-generation Christian. You know, God doesn't have grandchildren. He only has children. You can't say my great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather is God. It doesn't work like that. You're this child, or you're not. Only first generation. And one of the things that really led me to a deeper appreciation of what we've been given as a people was when I would sit down and give Bible studies to people. And it's an amazing experience because I give the Bible study on, on hell to a Baptist. And they have believed all their life that hell burns forever and ever and ever and ever. And then I present the Bible truth that hell doesn't burn forever and ever. And it's not burning right now. God is merciful. And their eyes light up. And they're like, whoa, this is amazing. I've never heard this before. And it's, it's amazing and beautiful because I vicariously experience their experience and their joy. And I'm like, whoa, this is amazing after all. Oh my, whoa, this is, this is, this is incredible. And then I share the truth about the Sabbath and these individuals give up everything to keep the Sabbath holy. They give up their jobs because it's all about Jesus and spending time with him. They walk away and sacrifice their entire career to keep the Sabbath holy. And in my own mind, I begin to relive or live again in terms of my experience with the truth that I've been sitting on my entire life. And this is the reason I believe that God calls us to minister. God doesn't need us. Uh, who would you rather have give a Bible study, Pastor Shin or the angel Gabriel? I mean, the angel Gabriel. Uh, the, the reason why God has us minister for him is not because we are ne a necessity. It's because there is something that happens in the transmission of these truths that we've been given. There is a rebirth that takes place in our own hearts, in our own souls. We begin to really appreciate the legacy that we've been given as a people. Tremendous opportunity that we have to share. According to Leslie Harding, he says, Belshazzar's example stands out as a beacon to admonish us of what we ought never to do, ignore or make light of the truths that we have received from Scripture. We as Christians have been given a tremendous heritage a tremendous gift, a tremendous legacy. Seventh-day Adventists, we've been given the Bible and the spirit upon prophecy, and it is truly a gift. It is a gift. It is there to bless God's people, and we are to take into consideration the amount of light that we've been given. Here it is in James chapter 4, verse 17. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. You see, God is very fair. 
In other words, if you don't have the knowledge, you're not held accountable. If you have the knowledge, you're held accountable. And I like one, what one person said. He said, look, the things in the Bible that troubles him is not the things that he doesn't understand. He says it's the things that he does understand and has difficulty practicing. You know, love your neighbor, it's easy to understand, difficult to practice. Love your enemy, easy to understand, difficult to practice. Last but not least, here's our last verse found in your study guide, John chapter 12, verse 35. Then Jesus said to him, a little while longer is the light with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. Jesus is illustrating that the light is moving. The light is moving, and I'm so glad Jesus didn't say run. He says walk. So the, the light is moving, and he says, walk in the light. In other words, one step at a time, and the light will keep moving one step at a time. Our, our comprehension of truth is progressive. But the implication is, if we don't keep moving, what will happen? The light will move on, and we'll be left in darkness. It's not how much we know, it's what we do with what we know. And I'm so glad that God only presents enough information for us to take the next step. And the question is, what is the next step that God is calling you to take today? That's it. Take that next step. It doesn't matter how large that light may be or how small it may be. God says, I want you to take the next step. I was studying with an individual that was uh, part of another denomination. He was the head deacon of another church. And uh, he raised his hand for baptism one Sabbath and came to me and said, Pastor, um, I want to be baptized, but uh, I don't want to join your church. I said, oh, okay, well, let's study together. Will you study with me? That's the next step. He said, sure, I'll study with you. So he took the next step. We met together, and uh, we had a study on the Sabbath. And he said, Pastor, I'm not sure about the Sabbath. Um, I'm not sure if I can quit going to my other church on Sunday. And uh, I said, well, what's the next step? And he said, well, I guess I can go to both. I said, well, take that step. So he took that step, began to go to both churches, Sabbath and Sunday. And uh, after a while, he said, Pastor, I can't keep doing this anymore. This is getting tiring. So I said, what's the next step? He said, well, I guess I'll just come on Saturday. So he just came on Saturday. And uh, after a while, I came to him and I said, what's the next step? And he said, Pastor, um, I decided to give up all of my responsibilities at the other church. I didn't push him. He just knew that God was calling him to do the next step. Well, step by step, he walked right into the baptistry. He's baptized. He's a Seventh-day Adventist. He's in a deacon, and now a deacon in the church that I just left. You know, I, I go online and watch their online streaming from time to time, and there he is on the front row. And I said, here's a man that took one step after another step after another step, and look where it led him. The thing is, every step we take changes us for the next step. You take the next step, and it changes you. 
Some people wonder, how did I end up here? Well, it was one step at a time that began that transformation. And it works both ways. What is God calling you to do today? What is the next step? What is the light that God has placed in front of you? The Bible says, walk. Pray to Jesus and say, Lord, help me to walk in the light, to take that next step with Jesus. To whom much is given, much will be required. It's not how much you know, it's what you do with what you know. And in the end, the Bible says, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. If you love Jesus, you will love the truth. Amen? Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for Jesus. And we pray that we would fall in love with truth. Because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Bless us, we pray, with your presence as we continually endeavor to walk in the light as Jesus is in the light. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.